Amen. So you're finding your seat. Go ahead and take your Bibles and let's turn together to Galatians. We're in the third chapter of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And I'll just add that I am overjoyed uh, that my son has uh, managed somehow to talk this sweet girl <laughs> into marrying him. Amen. As you're finding your Bibles, if you're our guest, we just want to remind you that we're working our way through the book of Galatians. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 3. And I'm going to read for us the first nine verses. We're really going to focus our attention on verses 6 through 9. We're going to pick up kind of the last part of where Ronnie left off last week and then go forward a little bit. Uh, but this whole section will stand together. It'll help if, if you follow along in a Bible. If there's not one in your hand or on your phone, you just cuddle up right next to the person that's next to you. Who knows where that uh, could lead in the future. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith that are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, uh, if you've ever visited that particular uh, place of fame and wonder, the name Charles Blondin, or Blondin, Blondin, I'm not sure, I don't remember how to pronounce it, might be familiar to you. He's, there's, a, there's a little a monument there or a little placard that you can read. Uh, during the mid-19th century, this particular Frenchman gained international fame by being one of those people who would cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Uh, he regularly crossed over, back and forth, that whole gorge. Uh, the distance was 1,100 feet long as he walked, and it was 160 feet over the top of the gorge where he was walking. He performed the feat a number of times, sort of adding theatrics to it as he went. He did it blindfolded. He did it on stilts. Uh, he did it carrying another man on his back, all while walking across a three and a quarter inch cable for 1,100 feet and not falling off. One day, having pushed a wheelbarrow out in front of him as he crossed over it, uh, having, having pushed that all the way across, he turned to the gathered folks who were absolutely astonished at him, and he said, how many of you believe that I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and still make it across the gorge? And everyone there applauded with, with confidence. Oh, yeah, you could do that. And then he said, which one of you will get into this wheelbarrow? And the whole crowd got quiet. It got really quiet because they realized he was being serious. And finally, one man came forward and said he'd get in the wheelbarrow. A lot of people come to churches and say, I believe, I believe, I have faith in Christ. I, I'm, I'm happy to say that so long as I'm in the crowd cheering on. And then when it comes for us to put our trust where our mouth is, we fade back into the crowd. I think it's a different thing to profess our trust in Christ on Sunday than it is to have a life that trusts Christ every day of the week. 
Our text this morning to me is a clear reminder that true faith, trust, trust in Christ is the only way to come to God. No work of our own can get us there. Only simple and true faith. As I said when I began, if you're our guest, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. And we do that regularly. Normally we take one section of a letter or book at a time. We work through it carefully trying to understand both what it means and how we're supposed to apply it to our lives. And we are about a third of the way through this book now. If you were here earlier um, at at the beginning of the year, you may have remembered uh, that that this particular book can be broken down into three sections fairly easily, uh, two chapters each. We are now in the second section. You remember that Paul wrote this particular letter to the church at Galatia, and he is the one who came through on a preaching tour and founded this particular church or these particular churches. And he preached a true gospel as the church began. But shortly after he left, the gospel became corrupted by those who came behind Paul and said, well, now, Paul was sort of a second-hand apostle. He, he really kind of came to the scene late, and he, he kind of got an abbreviated version of the gospel. So what you heard from Paul is partially true, but what you really need to do is to add a good level of Old Testament Hebrew law to your gospel, and then you'll get it right. That's when you'll have it right. And Paul is writing to those churches in response to those accusations that those teachers are making. And he's writing with a heart to preserve the most important message in human history. The message of how one traverses the gorge of sin. How do we ever get across that? It is only by faith in the work completed by Christ that anyone makes it across. God made a way for men and for women to be made right with him through Jesus Christ. And anyone can come to him and rest. Anyone can turn away from sin and self, put their faith in Christ and rest there. God does all the work. There's nothing for us to do in that. As I mentioned, there, there are three sections. We've started this second section, but that, that first section was sort of autobiographical. You remember those first two chapters, Paul is telling some stories from the past to help deal with the issue at the church at Galatia. He's reaching back into a similar occurrence uh, at, at another church at Syrian Antioch to help explain what's going on in the churches of Galatia. And now here in these middle two chapters, Paul's going to do a lot of theology. He's going to pull texts from the Old Testament. He's going to pull big ideas out of theology, lay them out in front of the Galatians, and show them that simple faith is the only way to come to God. And then after he does that, in chapters 5 and 6, which are frequently the most well-known of all the chapters of Galatians, when he gets there, he lives out all of those things. He says, so if all that's true, then this is how your life will change. And so we are right in the beginning of this middle section of theology, of talking through what it means to actually experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you come to faith in Christ He brings up, even in this text, this theological argument. He started the section. You remember the first few verses that we went through. He went to their own experience. How did you come to faith, O Galatians? What happened there? Did you trust in the law and that saved you, or was it by faith? And now he's turning the page in our verses today to say, well, the way that you came to faith, that's the same way Father Abraham came to faith. That's the exact same thing that happened to the person that you probably most respect in all of your religious history. Father Abraham came the exact same way that you came, the first in the line of the people of Israel. You do remember Father Abraham. If I were to use the name Abraham, you may immediately think of someone like Abraham Lincoln. Or you may immediately think of the song that Father Abraham had many sons and, I, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? And it's true. That's sort of what our text is saying. Father Abraham was rescued and came to the Lord the same exact way that the churches of Galatia came. And that is by faith. 
Well, there's one big point to this passage, and I think the point of this passage is actually sort of underneath all the rest of this, the next couple of chapters. It sits at the bottom of everything that's going to be discussed over the next few weeks as we work our way through this, and that is this. This is our main point. There's going to be one point to this message today that we're going to draw it out into different directions, but there really is one sentence that summarizes all that we've got here, and that is that anyone who comes by faith to Christ receives sonship and blessings of Abraham. Anyone who comes by faith to Christ receives the sonship and blessings of Abraham. We're going to use that sentence kind of as our focus. We'll pull a few of those words out and unpack how this text uh, explains many of those things. Some, at some point in the next few weeks, you're going to be tempted to go, okay, okay, Matt, Ronnie, we understand salvation is by faith. Like we get it. And at that point, when that pings in your mind, I want you to remember what I'm about to tell you. At that moment, you're going to be tempted to say, I understand that, so it doesn't matter. Teach me something new. And I think Paul, in our text and throughout this book, is saying, no, friend, everything you need to know comes out of that very truth. If you're going to grow in your faith, if you're going to walk with the Lord, you cannot let this go. It's got to stay in your viewfinder as you explore and apply every other text in the Bible. In fact, I would ask you to, to go to the Lord when that pings in your head and say, Lord, just expose any part of my life that is contradicting the truth that I am rescued by faith alone, in Christ alone, by your grace alone. So let's just dive into our one big point. Let, let's, let's just jump right in with both feet, seeing that anyone who comes by faith to Christ can receive the sonship and blessing of Abraham. The first thing I think I would ask if, if I hadn't studied all week on this text, the first thing I would ask is what in the world does Abraham have to do with any of this discussion? Why, why are we now talking about Abraham? What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you do see Abraham... God made specific promises to Abraham, promises that he's keeping right now, right now that he is keeping through Christ. You know, as people learn theology, as they study or, or work through theology, they'll, they'll often find this term covenant theology, and they'll kind of feel all, oh, well, now, mm -mm, boy, and now we have something you know, important because it pops up over and over Covenant theology does. And so it would be fair to ask, if God's making promises or covenants to Abraham, what is the big deal with these promises? Why do we keep going back and talking about promises? What even is a covenant? Well, my kids learned the answer in our home catechism that a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. A covenant, as opposed to a contract is an agreement that is not only physical but spiritual in nature where there's a relationship and promises are made, obligations undertaken, and there's a consequence if you break those obligations. One of the chief examples of a covenant, speaking from biblical terms, is marriage. Marriage is a covenant in scripture. It's a relationship that is pronounced based on a set of promises to God, to each other, and to a church. That's what a marriage is. And there are consequences if that covenant is broken. A covenant is a set of promises, and the Bible is filled with promises. Promises from God to his people. Some theologians would argue, and I think I agree by and large with the idea, that covenant is actually sort of like the backbone of Scripture, that a lot of what happens in the Bible happens along kind of a fault line, if you will, or a backbone of covenant throughout the story of redemption. One pastor has a book on the Old and New Testament, sermons on one, each on one book of the Bible, and the, the series is called Promises Made, Promises Kept, Old Testament, New Testament. That the whole idea is a set of promises all the way along the way. So I wonder if you're thinking about the promises that God has made, could you begin at the beginning of the Bible and help me think for just a moment, think theologically with me, why these promises matter and what they even are. 
You might start the conversation with the promises or the covenant at creation. And I'll be a little controversial here because there are those, not every scholar agrees that there's a formal covenant there because you don't see at the garden with Adam the specific word covenant used there. But there seems to be some kind of covenant relationship between Adam and God. So much so that Hosea, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, says that Adam actually broke covenant with God. That he transgressed the covenant. So there seems to be at least an implied covenant there. Adam and Eve were given obligations. God made promises to them in some way, though it's implicit. We don't know everything that's involved there. But we at least know what they were not to do. They were not to do. We're, we know what they were charged with doing also in, in the garden. And they transgressed the covenant, didn't they? And there were covenant curses that came upon them when they did that. Death entered humanity. And it would be right for our Bibles to stop right there. <laughs> for there to be no more pages after that. Because they've broken covenant. And it would be moral and just for God to say, well... You broke covenant. Here come the consequences. And yet even in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God gives a further promise to his people that the offspring of the woman would triumph over the offspring of the serpent. Here the promise-making God is making promises still. And yet it's clear that what Adam and Eve did unleashed evil on humanity. That disobedience was grave because as you work your way through uh, Genesis, you find yourself by Genesis chapter 6 realizing humanity is totally wicked all the way down to the core. So much so that God brings a flood on the earth, floods all the earth. And when he does it, he saves eight people alive. One particular family in kindness, he rescues them. And he makes a covenant with that family, with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. He makes an explicit covenant. Covenant, God promises to preserve the world, to keep it going until his promise of redemption is realized. He's not going to wipe the world out again as he did with the flood. And we see that covenant with Noah. And in many ways, isn't that an echo of what Adam was called to do? So in one way, Noah becomes a, a, a new kind of Adam in this particular account. He, like Adam, he is given the charge to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. He's given the same kind of call and expected to live in the same kinds of ways. But God's promise is that the world is going to stay going. There's still going to be season after season, year after year. And that the, the serpent crusher is coming, in fact. One of the most interesting things to me about the covenant with Noah is that the problem of sin is still not solved at that point. It wasn't solved in the garden. Still not solved with Noah. People are still broken and we're still rebelling. So then we roll the clock forward into Genesis chapter 11 and we see right after the Tower of Babel where the world is falling apart again, still not changed, still in sin, we see God make another covenant in Genesis chapter 12 when he finds Abram. And he makes a covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. This covenant is significant and it carries out over several chapters. You see it initiated in Genesis 12. You see it cut in Genesis chapter 15. You see the terms laid out again in Genesis chapter 17. Over and over, God is establishing this covenant with Abram, changing his name to Abraham, that God is going to give him three things. One, offspring. Two, land. Three, that there's going to be a kind of universal blessing that flows out of him. These are things that God promises to do. And God does this initially through the land of Canaan and through the child of Isaac. And then that universal blessing seems to be at bay and, and held off, as it were. It doesn't seem to be fulfilled just yet. And after you get out of the book of Genesis, you've already got Abram's, Abraham's family expanded so that the seed promise is filled up. But guess what? They're not in the land. In fact, they're in trouble. They're kind of in Egypt and, and they're, really, they're really in trouble so much so that the seed comes under threat. The, the seed has expanded and you see Pharaoh uh, rise up and try to wipe out the people of Israel, which, by the way, shows that Pharaoh is a part of the serpent's seed in this particular story. And God comes and frees the people of Israel from Egypt. 
And then a new covenant is made with them. Another covenant is made with them through Moses at Sinai in Deuteronomy chapters 19 through 24, where he establishes a covenant with the people of Israel. And that covenant at Sinai is intended to show them that they are to be distinct from all the other nations. He's going to give them his law. And they're going to see how he wants them to live so that they might live in a way that is a blessing to others, that establishes them in the land, that ensures that there will be a seed for the future. So all of Abraham's promises are going to come to pass now through the people of Israel and through the covenant of Sinai. But it doesn't happen and they don't keep it. And eventually there there arises not just that awful season of the judges, but you find them crawling out for a king as what they need. We need some kind of king to help us be the kind of people that we need to be. You see the picture already forming, don't you? We need some kind of king to help us be the people that we need to be. So in 2 Samuel 7, God initiates another covenant. He initiates a covenant with King David. In that covenant, we see the promises of Abraham The promise of land and offspring and blessing are going to be fulfilled and brought to fruition through the monarchy, through a king who holds this in place generation after generation. And so somehow a son of David, a son of a king, is going to work this out for us. Finally, that blessing is going to come. We've been waiting on that blessing a long time. Turns out David's son, Solomon, not such a great guy, right? Wise in many ways. It lives in disobedience in such a way that by the time you roll out just a couple generations later, you've got the kingdom divided and falling into sin repeatedly. In fact, living in ways like the Canaanites lived. False gods are being worshipped. Intermarriage is happening. The seed, the land, it's all being corrupted and they are exiled by God out of the land. So instead of the promises being fulfilled and kept by the people... There comes this realization that over and over and over again, the people can't make the promises happen. Generation after generation after generation. The promises of covenant are supposed to be realized and the people are the problem. It's almost like the whole system is set up and designed to show that we're going to need somebody else to keep this covenant. We're going to need a different kind of king We're going to need a different kind of Abraham, a different kind of Noah, a new Adam. We're going to need someone else to make any of these promises make sense. So God, even in the Old Testament, begins to say things about a new covenant that's coming. About a new covenant. You see it in Jeremiah chapter 31. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 36. You see it all over the book of Isaiah and in other prophets as well. There's going to be a new covenant with his people. Messiah will come and he will not only be the final covenant, but he will be the covenant keeper as well. This new covenant is the means by which the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of David and Noah and Adam is going to be filled up. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, the whole of all the covenant promises of God, everything is yes and amen in him. He filled it all up, kept Every rule of the law lived as Israel should have lived, lived as the king should have lived, lived as Noah and Adam all should have lived, lived as you and I should live. And not only that, he kept the the law for us and then he died even though we were the ones who broke all the promises. So that when the new covenant comes now, God puts his spirit in us, gives us a new heart that sees his law in new ways. So that in Christ, every Covenant promise of God is perfectly kept. Everything that I just told you is sitting right underneath the text of Galatians chapter 3. That whole story is not just Old Testament history for the sake of Old Testament history. When Paul's telling them, y'all, how did Abraham get the promise kept? Because he didn't keep it. He didn't do the law right. Circumcision wasn't enough. No. It was by hoping in God 
who would keep the promises himself. And that's the same way that we come. Every Sunday as we come to the Lord's table and we say, this is my body, which is broken for you. Many of us revel in the for you words, right? Where we think, oh, for me, he loved me. I think sometimes when we hear this is the new covenant in my blood, it can feel kind of thin or formulaic. Oh, that when you come to the table today, that when you think of what it means that he initiated and fulfilled the new covenant for you in his blood, that you would receive this table with joy, recognizing you've been brought into something that you never could have kept on your own. Promises that you were bound to fail that he kept for you and invited you into. So Paul, out of that fact that Abraham kept, uh, kept not the law, but had faith in God, Paul points to Abraham and said, he's who we should look at to see how someone comes to God. It's right there in the text. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's likely, I think, that, that the, the, the particular people that he's dealing with who were speaking against Paul were saying things like, oh, Paul, yeah, yeah, he's looking at Abraham, but he didn't look at Moses. Like, Moses has a whole law that we're supposed to keep. It's almost like Paul goes, well, I mean, you're really just going to jump past Abraham? You're just going to jump past Abraham who believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul points their mind and their heart to that example of faith right there. Paul shows the Galatians the reality that God's promises have always functioned on the basis of our trust in him, even since Abraham. I think Paul's pointing out to the, the uh, particular false teachers that if they're going to hold up circumcision as their means of justification, they haven't looked carefully enough at the word. So I think that's what Abraham has to do with all of this. Let's look quickly at the structure of the text that we've got before us today. You can just visually look down and see verses 6 through 9, and you can see a structure happen pretty quickly. In verse 6, look with me. Remember, Abraham was made righteous by faith. Verse 7, anyone who has faith is Abraham's child. Verse 8, remember, God promised Abraham that God would bless the nations through him. And then in verse 9, Anyone who has faith gets Abraham's blessing. It's a really simple structure. There's not a lot of nuance or confusion about what he's saying. It's a focus on Abraham and faith and then the resulting sonship and blessing. And all of, things, all of these are given as God's gift, his gift, his fulfillment of his own promise. So then let's look at our purpose statement one more time. Anyone who comes by faith can receive the sonship and blessing of Abraham. Look with me at verse 6 briefly. How is it that Abraham got righteous in verse 6? It wasn't in being circumcised or keeping the covenant himself, was it? No, Abraham believed God. Look at verse 6. Abraham believed God. Look at verse 7. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed. Friends, it's very clear there's only one way to get to God. There's only one way to come to God, and it's not your ethnicity, and it's not your moral excellence. It's not your heritage. It is believing. It is faith. So Paul is speaking to a bunch of Gentiles and saying that even though they aren't from the right people group, even though their ethnicity is all wrong, their up upbringing was completely unkosher, those Gentiles, in fact, can come to God and be accepted by faith because anyone can come who comes by faith. Later in this chapter, look with me at Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Lots of people want to just take that verse and talk a lot about things in there and not look at the context. Look at the rest of what he says. If you are Christ, so anybody can come to Christ. Doesn't matter what kind of person you are. Anybody can come to Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Jews and non-Jews, slaves and free people, male and female people can be offspring or children or sons of Abraham. He says very much the same thing in Romans chapter 9. He says it this way, not all who are descended from Israel 
belong to Israel. Not all who are children, not all are children of Abraham just because they are descendants. It's not your ethnicity or your lineage that makes you Christ's. And friends, there's a warning here for those of us who, who rightly, rightly love that our family is near the things of God. You do know being a part of a Christian family does not a Christian make. Do you understand that? That is not to in any way diminish the grace that is present in a Christian family. Oh, thank God for that grace. But do not ever presume that because your mama and your daddy love Jesus that that's the same thing as you loving Jesus. Those are not the same thing. You must deal with God yourself. Your lineage will not get you in. Only faith. Only faith in Christ. Paul's pressing the point to these Galatians, and I, I think I want to draw it out to us, that anyone can come. That it is, since it's by faith, it's not who you are or where you came from that gets you in. Anyone can come. Paul is very plain. They're the only imperative in this entire section uh, of, of, uh, of verses 6 through 9 is verse 7. That word no right there is in the imperative form. There are things that we must know, that we're commanded to know. So if you want to be as literal as you can be on this passage, this passage ought to address your mind. There are things you ought to know. And one of them is this, Basswood, anyone who comes to God by faith comes to Christ. Anyone, any kind of person. Now, can you see the largeness of that kind of promise? You see the bigness of a promise like that? That anyone can come? You may, you may be afraid that somehow you are the exception to that rule. That somehow you are the, 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 the one that, that sort of slipped through and not anyone, I mean anyone else, but not me, is what you might think. You, you may think that somehow you've done something that would keep you from being accepted by God on the basis of Christ's work and your trust in it. But God's promises are true. And even the person in this room today who has the most reasons to be kept out of God's grace can come simply by belief, by faith in the work of Christ, by trust. Anyone in this room can come. You can come to Jesus and find rest in him. What if you sinned in huge ways? What if you've really sinned big? Those who come in faith are justified and blessed, friends, not those who've only sinned a little bit. What if, what if you're an old sinner? You say, Matt, that, that's well and good, but I've heard this story a long time and I still live in my sinful rebellion against God. Listen, those who come in faith are justified and blessed, not just those who turn while they're young. What if you're a hard-hearted sinner? Those who come in faith are justified and blessed. Not just those who had the right feelings when they came. What if you're a backsliding sinner? You've sinned in light of grace. Those who come in faith are justified and blessed. Not just those who didn't trip after they came. So if there's a, a mom in this room who's heard the gospel all her life, She's heard it over and over, but she struggled with secret guilt and feels unworthy to come to Christ because of her sin. Listen, she can't make herself well. But faith in Christ's work, Christ's work will make her well. It will atone for her. It will set her free. What about a daughter trapped in a, a double life, living for her flesh instead of living for Christ? You think she can't come to Christ? No. If she would but believe, but hope in Christ, she would be justified before God. Every single man, whether old or young, who's bought the devil's lie that the dark is where satisfaction is, oh, brother, you could come today. You could walk right out into the light of freedom. If you would trust Christ, you could come and be forgiven, made clean, brought into the light. 
Anyone who comes by faith in Christ receives sonship and blessing that God promised to Abraham. Anyone. So my simple question there is, have you come? Is that true of you? Well, how do you come? By faith. By faith alone. Look at, look at verse 7 uh, and just for, for a moment and note with me that he says, Know this, that those of faith are sons of Abraham. I was reminded of a story in the Gospel of John where the Jews are defending themselves. This is in John chapter 8. Where the Jews are defending themselves against Jesus' criticism of them. And they have something to say about sons of Abraham. Right? They look right back at Jesus and say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. Hey, what did Abraham do in our passage? He believed God. He believed. He believed God. And it was counted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was a man of faith. So if you want to do what Abraham did, be men and women who trust the Lord. Put your faith in him. That's doing what Abraham did. That means anytime you are tempted to bring up your heritage or your good moral or ethical code or anything else and hold it out as your virtue, you are saying like those Jews in John 8, look, I'm a son or a daughter of good behavior. Don't you see? That's enough. And to that, we would just say, do what Abraham did. Just do what Abraham did. You can't trust your works. Do what Abraham did. Believe Trust the Lord. Being a son of Abraham in this sense means believing God's promises. Abraham believed God. And so those of faith are those like Abraham who believe God. Simple faith is the only way that anyone comes to God. But I do want to clarify here. Simple faith is not just nodding your head and knowing some facts, right? It's not the same thing as just mental assent. Like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, I, I go to church, I'm a Christian, all that's kind of check, 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 check in my mind. It's not just mental assent. Trust is not merely that. It's actually getting into the wheelbarrow and crossing, trusting Jesus to get you across. It is far more than just nodding your head. In fact, I, I would say that trust or faith is like Devotion or submission might be a good word. Or the resignation of my ownership of myself. I'm, I'm putting it all in his hands. I'm saying yes to him. I, I trust him, not me, to get me to God. Faith may be simple, but it's not always easy, is it? I think when a, a good illustration of this is when a, it's an earthy illustration. We'll have to make some spiritual application. But when a loved one may need to go see a doctor, when, when you've got someone in your family who's, who's sick, maybe to the point of needing someone to do surgery, someone's going to have to open up your loved one and help fix something that's wrong on the inside. In that moment, we are each called not just to nod our head and say we get it, but actually to trust into the hands of another person, our loved one. As they roll them away on the gurney, we're saying, I'm trusting you to help us here. It's a very earthy, limited illustration, but at a far deeper and truer level, we must put our trust in the Lord. Faith in Christ is not just agreeing to a story or joining a group like you might join Costco. We're putting our eternal spiritual hope into the promises of God that what he says is true and what he's going to do, he actually will accomplish. That he will forgive us, redeem us, and rescue us through Jesus Christ and his cross. So simple faith is, is simple in that it is, it is not hard to understand, but it is submission. It is trust. Is that how you would describe your relationship to the Lord? Submission and trust? Anyone who comes by faith in Christ can receive sonship and blessing that, that God promised to Abraham. Anyone, and it's by faith in Christ. And what, what do you receive if you come? This is verses seven through nine, really. You see it laid out there pretty plainly that you'll become a son of Abraham you're, and also that you'll receive the blessing that was promised, verses eight and nine. 
So what was Abraham promised that God would give him? God's going to give that old man a family. He's going to make him a daddy. He'd have the one thing that he lived his entire life without up to that point. He'd be a part of a true family. The promises were literally seed and land. And without being graphic, that seed is not like a, a pear tree seed. That is like people. But those literal promises, I think, have an even more literal meaning. Okay, now all you grammar Nazis who just, when, I, when you start using the word literal, everybody's like, oh, you know. You, know you, can't, you can't just throw literal around literally. You can't do that. But I believe when God made those promises to Abraham, he had an immediate promise for Abraham that he was going to fulfill and a deeper promise that was even further behind everything that he was saying. A truer promise that the land of Canaan could only be a shadow of and a truer promise that the son Isaac could only be a glimpse of. And that truer promise was Jesus. Underneath everything that God promised to Abraham, it was not merely a physical descendant, it was being brought into God's family. And it was not merely a piece of land that I could live on while I draw breath. It was the promise that there is an eternal home for you with God. That the garden that had been broken where we had fellowship with him, that that will be restored. And that we will be brought together again as a family and as a people in a place that's exactly what he's doing. It's all about Jesus and all about eternity. Through Jesus and by faith in him, we are made part of God's family. All that is promised to Abraham is given to us so that anyone who comes by faith is a son or a child of God and is an heir to every promise that Abraham was given. So what are those blessings that Abraham was promised? Is there anything in that inheritance that's, that's going to interest somebody like us? Uh, people with iPhones and, and uh, people who have Netflix? Is there anything interesting in these promises that should draw our interest? I believe there's plenty, far more than we will ever find in anything we see on a screen. But I think the, the promise that's actually given to us plainly later on in this particular text is that we are promised, or even in our text, justification before God. Look with me at verse 8. And the scripture, seeing that God would justify, justify, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Do you see the link between the word justify and blessing in that text? They, they go straight to each other. One of the blessings that God is going to give his people, his new family, is that they will stand before him fully justified. If you are a child of Abraham, part of your blessing is justification, that you can stand before God and not fear his right wrath, but stand fully, completely justified. And that he's going to do that for people from every tribe and nation in the world. It's a side note. I talked with a brother on Friday as I thought about this verse 8. It's really interesting to me. This is just a curiosity. You can chase it down on your own later. Um, I'll say a few words about it, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. Isn't verse 8 interesting? It personifies the Scripture in a way that you don't see in a lot of places in the Bible. Do you see it? Who in verse 8 is doing the preaching? It's, it's the Scripture that is doing the preaching of the Gospel. Now, hold on. Time out. Because there's no written scripture when God gives this promise to Abraham in chapter 12 or 15 or 17. It's not codified in that way. So what, what's going on there? What exactly is happening? You may be able to intuit the answer. You might be able to sense uh, that, 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 that Paul is actually using the term scripture as a personification, a stand-in for God himself. Because it is God who's speaking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But why does he do that? My suggestion would be that because in Paul's mind and in the way that the Scripture teaches, when God speaks, the Scripture speaks. And when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. The glorious reality is that everything God says is truth. When we look at the Bible, we have God's very words. Not some, some, uh, some secondhand version, but God's own words. 
to us. And I love the reality that everything God tells us relates in one way or another to his plans to redeem his people. The gospel is underneath and behind everything. Jesus himself taught that. Do you remember the Emmaus Road incident? After the resurrection, Jesus is walking with these disciples. They don't know who he is. And he begins to explain the scripture to them, showing them that all of the scriptures pointed to him. Boy, would you not have wanted to be a part of that particular lesson that particular day? I would. Show me how every text of the Bible is about you, Jesus. Please. All the scriptures speak of him. And here we have Paul using a very similar event, looking at the events of Genesis chapter 12 and seeing that the God the Father is pointing toward Jesus and his gospel through the promises that he's speaking about land and about eternal blessing. He's pointing at Jesus right there in that passage. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the true gospel is no new thing. It is as old as the hills. It was heard in Eden before man was driven from the garden, and it has since been repeated in sundry ways and in diverse places even to this day. Oh, that its very antiquity would lead men to venerate it and then to listen to its voice. It is gospel or good news, the best of news to fallen men. Oh, that they would receive it with gladness. Listen, every page of your Bible is meant in one way or another, to point you to Jesus. Either your need of him or his supply for you. It is all about him. And when we go to the Bible looking first and primarily for tips and techniques about how to get what we actually want, we're actually using the Bible in a way that it was not meant to be used. One of the ways that I like to think about this, uh, my, my wife grew up in Oak Ridge. If you talk to people who live in the city of Oak Ridge for a long time, one of the things that I've noticed is that folks who live there for a long time uh, feel like every street leads to Oak Ridge Turnpike, right? So if you ask them how to get to Oak Ridge Turnpike, well, they'll say, well, I mean, you can go down here and turn left and eventually you'll get, or, well, you could actually go down here and turn right and eventually you'll, and kind of every road goes back to the turnpike because the turnpike runs horizontally through the city, right? It runs the whole way across the town from one end to the other, all the way across town. And so eventually, if you wind around long enough, you'll get back on the turnpike. You'll be fine. That's the way they talk about it. In a much deeper and truer way, every single word of the Bible is connected to Jesus. He's standing behind every single page. It may be hard for us to see sometimes, but he is there. When God speaks, he is speaking of himself and of his ways of redeeming us. So here in this text, in verse 8, we're talking about these, these blessings, but I'm just noticing that, that this particular text shows the Scripture is one of the means by which he proclaims the goodness of the blessings that we're going to receive. As I mentioned, one of the promised blessings that Paul's talking about is justification. We see that here. And that justification is made in spite of all of our rebellion against him. God reckons us to be righteous, even though we are not ourselves righteous. If you're a child of Abraham, all the things that you have ever done wrong or will ever do wrong are forgiven because of Christ. God does not hold your sins against you. Does that sound too good to be true? It's an amazing truth. So what we inherit from God as children of Abraham is justification. We're declared forgiven and acquitted of all our sin. And that blessing only happens because of what Jesus did on the cross. Notice something else about verse 9. So I'm just pull this out for you to see. Notice that that blessing goes on and on. The tense changes from either a past or a future tense to a sort of ongoing present tense in verse 9. In you shall all the nations of the earth be, or shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. There's sort of a perpetualness to that. It's ongoing, present, ever and ever blessed that we receive as passive agents God's blessing over and over and over. You have been blessed. You will be blessed. You are being blessed forever through the blessings of faith in Christ so that we can land with our sentence one last time. Anyone 
who comes by faith in Christ can receive the sonship and blessing that God promised to Abraham. You know, a lot of folks had heard of the tightrope walker, uh, Charles Blondin, before. They knew all about his amazing feats. They, quote, believed that he could do amazing things on a tightrope over Niagara. But when the call came for somebody to get in the wheelbarrow, that kind of belief was tested and found wanting. They didn't have faith in Blondin. You know, the single person who did get into the wheelbarrow that day, that was actually Blondin's agent. This guy had worked with him for a long time, and he knew him really well, and he trusted him. He had every reason to know, this is the kind of guy who can get me across. Friend, you and I must put our trust, our faith in the Lord. That is the only way that we will survive, that we will get across. And I just want to remind you as we close that anyone, anyone in this room today who would put their faith in Christ can come and be received and receive all that God promised to Abraham in sonship and blessing. That's the only hope that we have to make it to God. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Almighty God, you are so loving and merciful and gracious. Father, you forgive us based on the work of your own son. So God, I'm asking for myself and my, my friends in this room that we would have simple faith in Christ. If there's anyone here who believes the lie that they can't come because of their sin, Spirit, please remove the lies of the devil. Let them see that freedom will be theirs if they will come to Christ. And God, if there's any residue left in my brothers and my sisters of trying to earn your mercy, or if we have any measure of trust in our own goodness, God, would you free us from that folly, Lord, and let our trust be in Christ and let it bear good fruit in our lives. We ask this in the perfect name of Jesus who died for us. Amen.